Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the history of the unexpected interactions between Islam and yoga. For anyone entering a yoga studio today, the world of Islam might feel a million miles away. But for more than a thousand years, practitioners of yoga have lived side by side with the Muslims of the Indian subcontinent. The history of Islam and yoga, of Muslims and Hindus, of yogis and Sufis, is more than a tale of simple coexistence, though. It's also a story of close interactions and careful comparisons, of Persian translations of Sanskrit texts and Arabic investigations of yogic doctrines, along with a shared concern with the spiritual value of breath control, habsidam, as it was usually called in Persian text of the period. In this episode, we'll be looking at some of the most influential Muslim authors of such topics, whether Muhammad Ghaus of Gwalia, who died in 1562, or five centuries earlier, the, the Central Asian polymath Al-Biruni, who died in 1048. But far from burying our heads in recondite manuscripts, we'll be placing these figures into their living environments, looking at the Sufi shrines where Sufis met with yogis, and wondering what they had in common, as many of these figures frequently asked one another. We'll also then be asking how these medieval and early modern encounters from the 11th through the 17th century can inform our understanding of religious pluralism in the South Asian region as well as more broadly today. I'll be talking to Carl W. Ernst, who's the keen and distinguished professor of Islamic studies at the Department of Religious Studies in the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He's the author, among many other works, of Refractions of Islam in India, Situating Sufism and Yoga, which was published by Sage in 2016. Hello, Carl. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you so much. Well, today we're going to be talking about India. But although we'll be talking about a place called India, we should all bear in mind that it represents the space on the map that we would now actually refer to as not only India, the Republic of India, but also Pakistan and Bangladesh. And indeed, when we think and talk about this historic India, that we're talking about today, we should bear in mind that it actually is today holds the world's largest Muslim population of any region in the world. So my listeners might be thinking, well, what's India got to do with Islam? There are an enormous number of Muslims there, but they were always taking the subcontinent, historically India as a, as a whole, uh, a minority, a large minority, a substantial minority. And the religions around them that were grouped together as Hinduism or the Hindu religions, uh, we're gonna, that's what we're going to be looking at today, interactions then between Hinduism and Islam, to simplify it. And indeed, more specifically, between yoga and Sufism, or yogis, yogis and Sufis. 
But before we move into those more focused uh, elements of our discussion today, Carl, perhaps you can start us off by explaining how did Muslim communities first emerge in India and how was Muslim culture and Islam adapted to this wider Indian cultural and religious environment? Well, as you know, Niall, there's a long and complicated story. I mean, the Indian subcontinent is enormous. And uh, of course, the uh, Arab uh, Caliphate uh, sent an army of conquest to the Indus Valley uh, shortly around after 700 and established a kingdom there. And uh, later on, there are uh, nomadic invaders from the Northwest, from the Central Asia, who have had a habit of invading India for a long time in different ways, going back to the Huns, et cetera. So the Turks that come in uh, with uh, Mahmoud of Ghazna, whose name is well known in both positive and negative formats, uh, is often referred to as the beginning point of uh, the North Indian experience with Muslim conquerors. However, the uh, the appearance of Muslims in South Asia also includes significant uh, seafaring communities who became uh, integrated into the countries of South India, uh, both the uh, eastern and western sides. And so there's a long-standing history of Tamil and Malayalam, Kannada-speaking Muslims. And going down to Sri Lanka, of course, uh, there's a presence of Islam going back a long time. And, mythologies, uh, if you like, uh, celebrate the appearance of Adam when he landed on earth was of course on Sri Lanka, uh, the mountain that is known as Adam's Peak in his memory. Of course, the Hindus believe that the massive footprint in the shrine up the top is that of Shiva and the Buddhists, of course, revere it as that of Lord Buddha. But the Muslims are pretty sure it's Adam's footprint and uh, it's kind of symbolic of the presence of Islam in South Asia for uh, quite a long time. And so uh, we've seen many empires, kingdoms rise and fall uh, over the centuries. And uh, there was a very powerful sultanate established in Delhi that lasted for several centuries, succeeded by the Mughals, uh, which are the kind of stellar dynasty famous for the Taj Mahal and many other cultural monuments. Uh, while in the uh, southern regions, uh, uh, the Deccan, which is a place that you and I have both uh, studied, uh, saw some remarkable dynasties with magnificent uh, cities, architecture, painting, uh, and the like. And the spread of culture through popular dimensions has uh, oftentimes centered around the Sufi shrines and the uh, Sufi orders, the saints that became renowned uh, throughout different communities and uh, which have played an extraordinary role uh, in engagement with Indian culture because one of the things of course, which is notable about them is that they, uh, the Sufis adopted vernacular languages very readily. And so they grew up with a mother tongue which would be an Indian language while they were trained in Arabic and Persian as the formal scholarly language. But as a result, uh, and this was at a time when um, as in Europe, the literati, the educated uh, classes, which in India would be the Brahmins and their uh, associates, 
they adhered to a classical language and they regarded the popular spoken languages as too vulgar to be bothered with. And so some of the most notable uh, breakthroughs in establishing literature in the uh, languages like early Hindi, uh, Gujarati, Bengali, and, and others was very noticeably led by Sufi authors who brought in Islamic concepts, but also translated them into local uh, idioms. And so uh, the result is that uh, then two major regions in the Northwest and the Northeast, which is now Pakistan more or less and Bangladesh, there were large concentrations of Islamic population that's developed over centuries. Process of conversion is complex. There are lots of different theories for why it happened in those places. But I think one strong reason is that those were the places in subcontinental uh, India that were least connected to the scriptural literary traditions of Sanskrit. And so conversion was much more uh, possible and more common than it was in the central and southern regions of, of India. So um, nevertheless, um, if we took a look at British colonial India in 1947, approximately a quarter of the population of the under British rule in India was um, connected to Islam. And that was a a reason for the partition of India into India and Pakistan, a political decision that had uh, very difficult uh, consequences at the time and the political results are still being strongly debated. Uh, but as you mentioned, uh, the population of Muslims in South Asia is perhaps the largest single agglomeration in, within the Muslim larger uh, global presence. And so uh, this history, which goes back well over a thousand years is consequential. And it is something which is still kind of debated because of the presence of ideological nationalistic movements, which take their identity in terms of religion. And so the current government in India which is allied to a Hindu fundamentalist perspective has a hostile perception of Muslims and this creates uh, some significant social tensions and political problems which are going to be difficult to work out. And I think there's no doubt about that. But the history of Islamic culture in South Asia is one of the brilliant parts of the pre-modern cultural history that we can all enjoy. Uh, the architectural monuments, starting with the Taj Mahal, I mean, everybody in the world has seen pictures of the Taj Mahal. Don't you agree? Absolutely. And, and so uh, what is the Taj Mahal about, for instance? I just spoke with my class about this the other day. There are quotations from 29 chapters of the Quran written into the surfaces of the Taj Mahal. Now, art historians finally began to wonder at some point, if a building has writing on it, perhaps we should read it to see what it tells us about the nature of that building. And uh, one of the results is that it turns out these passages from the Quran describe 
the Garden of the Resurrection uh, for the, uh, the dramas of the afterlife. And if you look at the layout of the Taj Mahal, you have these little river-like uh, canals meeting in the center, four rivers of paradise. And it kind of clicks that you have um, this representation of heaven on earth and the Mughals love that imagery as was written into one of the palaces in, uh, in the north. Uh, it says, you know, if there is paradise upon the earth, it is this, it is this, it is this. So that claim was bold, but it was fairly convincing to some at least at the time. Uh, and of course, the um, one of the other places where I see the Islamic culture from South Asia being very popular is in music. And uh, the performances of Kavali music on Coke Studio recordings, uh, there are some of those songs which have recorded over 250 million views. Now, I don't think you or I will ever get 250 million views. So there's something going on there which is uh, caught people's imagination. Uh, so uh, there are still obviously uh, debates about the relationship of Islam to political power. Islamic states are present now in Pakistan and Bangladesh. And, Nobody has ever figured out an interpretation of that slogan that makes equal sense to everyone. So the ideals associated with that, was it to be the establishment of a state where Muslims would have full rights and, and position? Or was it a state for Muslims alone? These are the kinds of questions that, that were debated. Um, so, as we begin to think as, about the other topic of today's discussion, namely the relationship with, with, with Hinduism, what was it that Muslims could talk about in other religions? There has been a long history of this, the Quranic concept of peoples of the book, for instance. Jews and Christians and later Zoroastrians were added to that list were considered to be monotheistic people who had a legitimate religion, even if Muslims disagreed with their beliefs in significant respects. And they could have uh, recognized positions in Muslim societies, albeit at a second class citizen rate, no doubt. But nevertheless, the notion that religious minorities have rights was significant and we don't see the equivalent of that in medieval Christian Europe, for instance. But when the uh, Arabs got to Sindh in the early 700s, they took a similar approach and treated Brahmins as the equivalent of Christian monks and more or less give a pass to uh, Hindus and potentially Buddhists, although they were not very numerous anymore at the time in India. And so the question of the relationship between these two systems of thought, as it were, became a very deeply thought through issue. And many intellectuals over the years 
have thought about the relationship of uh, Hinduism to the monotheistic creeds. So the great uh, scholar Al-Biruni uh, around the year 1000 wrote his famous study of India and he argued that the elite of India were monotheists and their doctrines were similar to those of the Greek philosophers, the Sufis, and uh, therefore could be contemplated with equanimity by, by Muslims. Uh, people like Al-Biruni also tended to say that, well, the Indians actually learned a lot from Pythagoras. And so uh, that was another way of assimilating them to well-known models because of course the Greeks were accepted and furnished important material for theology and philosophy to the, to the Muslims. So uh, that opened up the possibility of understanding the implications of another religious system. And that's a very complicated story, which I think we will now turn to. Thank you, Carl. That's so helpful that you've really set up for us very effectively, or set up, or rather, I should say, quite the opposite, perhaps demolish those notions that India is somehow the periphery of the Islamic world. You've given us this real sense that from the beginnings of, of Islamic history in the, the seventh century onwards, Muslims come to settle in India across the sea, but also over land. You've also mentioned the rise of these important Muslim world states, the, the Delhi Sultanates. And we should bear in mind that when the Delhi Sultanate founded in 1206, it's, it's very shortly before the Mongol invasions come and destroy Baghdad, the capital of the, of the Abbasid Caliphate and Empire. And the Turkic rulers of medieval Delhi, as you well know, were very proudly defeated, held off the Mongols, and were proud of calling their own capital Delhi the Qobatul Islam, the the, the shelter of Islam. So in the medieval period, Islam in the sense, sorry, uh, India, Delhi becomes in the center of the, the sense, the center of the Muslim world, not the periphery. And I think similarly important, as, as well as that sense demographically, politically, culturally, architecturally, as you said, that India is by no means the periphery of the Islamic world. We also have that hint that you've given us that Sufism is, is and the Sufis are not a peripheral part of Islam. There's so many yeah. hundreds, I would dare say, even perhaps thousands of these Sufi shrines across India, as well as across the wider Muslim yeah. world, that yeah. what we might now just simply call Sufism, Islamic mysticism in some textbook definition, in effect, effectively is Islam in, 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 in pre-modern India, and in many ways in much of India and South Asia, Pakistan today. But it's also, crucially, as we move towards our topic, these shrines as physical places, in many places, the places where non-Muslim pilgrims or religious figures, holy men and women can also come. So these are not exclusively Muslim places as well. So whether with these shrines or otherwise, perhaps can you tell us how, when, and did where did Muslims develop an interest in Hindu or other Indic Indian traditions of learning, whether specifically religious, yogic, or otherwise? Hmm. Well, Al-Biruni was kind of a, unique figure because uh, he wrote in Arabic and he was uh, highly intellectual and he didn't really have very many successors in that respect. People who grew up 
in a society where there were yogis and uh, others wandering around, had the opportunity to find out in kind of personal and semi-ethnographic way what's going on. Because these were, there were people like the, the yogis who were uh, themselves actually free to mix with outsiders in ways that the upper caste Brahmins were not because they would be safeguarding their ritual purity and they couldn't eat with or sit in the presence of people without risking that. So yogis who'd gone through a ritual death uh, felt free to show up at the Sufi shrines where there's a free kitchen and food is available. And so you can only imagine the conversations that went on uh, in those situations. But we know from the early 1300s that Sufis like uh, Chiragi Dehli and Gisa Daraz were uh, in conversation with, uh, with Jogis and carefully, cautiously discussing with them what they were up to. They were interested in breath control. They thought, this is interesting. This could be very helpful to meditation. They were also aware that there was alchemical magic going on among the yogis and they were not as enthusiastic about that. But uh, the yogis also became figures of mythology and in popular literature, they are the subject of fantastic stories. And we have lots of really interesting romances in which princes who fall in love with a faraway princess will run away to the wilderness together disguised as yogis. And so it becomes uh, a kind of open secret. And the doctrines of the yogis about the physiology of meditation were not exactly a secret, even though they've been taught from master to disciple and so forth. But people like Kabir, who is a, a, born into a Muslim community of weavers in Benares, uh, his verses, which are known to many illiterate people in the lowest classes of Northern India, uh, celebrate the tantric and yogic uh, physiology and the ascension of the soul through the chakras and things like that. And so uh, there were plenty of reasons why people would think about it. So uh, there was also a big movement that took place over this period of more than a thousand years when Muslim intellectuals in India who would speak some Indian language engaged in translation of writings either directly from the Indian languages, including Sanskrit, or in some cases would write original works about Indian materials because they were fascinated by it. So there's a large literature, which uh, today has kind of fallen between the cracks of uh, two disciplines, because we in our wisdom have divided up the world into separate regions that we assume are kind of independent of each other. So the Middle East and South Asia are supposed to be separate places, but surprise, they've actually been strongly connected for uh, thousands of years, no doubt. So, um, The people who began to be interested in translating works on uh, Indian religions, it goes all the way back to the Arabs. The Umayyad Caliphate 
around the year 800, uh, the vizier of the uh, Umayyad caliphs sent out a delegation, sent an ambassador to India and asked for information about the religions of India. And this report came back and it was widely distributed. And there are uh, half a dozen major authors in Arabic who uh, drew upon it. And it also went into Persian. And uh, what's fascinating is it says, in India, there's 99 different religions, but you can really cut them down to 42 if you want to. And some of them have prophets and some of them are monotheistic and others are not. So that's a pretty interesting starting point, which is that there's no single religion called Hinduism. That didn't really start to become a concept until very modern times comparatively. And so, uh, there's a lot of some early writings that are polemical, that are, that are hostile to the Indian religions, some of which portray the gods of Hinduism as more or less low-grade demons who've escaped from the Islamic cosmology. And uh, yet then uh, there's another kind of shift that takes place where uh, you have under the Mughal rulers, beginning with Akbar, who is the namesake for your show, uh, Persian became the language of administration. And there were many uh, Hindu scholars who became part of that secretarial apparatus. And they had to know everything from accounting to Persian poetry. But as a result, they also uh, became aware of the sort of jaundiced eye that some Muslims cast upon Hindu uh, religions. And so they began to write in Persian and there's a whole literature that has arisen, which is about um, Hindu philosophy, mysticism, pilgrimages, rituals, law, and everything associated with it. And which is presenting it in Persian terms, which would be part of the mentality of the, the governing elite of the, Mos of the Mughal Empire. So uh, this has resulted in a, a literature which is quite remarkable and it draws upon uh, everything from the sciences, from mathematics, from medicine, uh, astronomy and the like to uh, fairy tales, epic literature, uh, and as well as religion, theology and yoga. So uh, the intellectual curiosity was there. And as we see the growth of the interest in it by Indian born Muslims who have a connection with it, uh, this signifies, I mean, a cosmopolitanism that is quite extraordinary. And I find this literature to be uh, quite remarkable because of the way in which it does not fit into the preconceptions of identity politics and nationalistic histories of literature, which have been the sort of dominant modes of understanding uh, culture for a long time. Uh, so shall we take a look at, look at an example or what's the best? Yeah, I think that'd be helpful, Carl. Yeah, because as we move to the 17th century, you've given us a real sense of the way we've got a figure like Al-Biruni, 
guys 1048, 1050, whom you've mentioned, writes this great book in Arabic, the Book of India, let's translate it as. But he's he's a first generation immigrant, as we'd say, wouldn't he? He's from Central Asia. Right. He's, he's the court philosopher for, the, for these conquering Turkic elites. But then over the centuries then, as people, as you mentioned, are, are Indian born and raised, they're raised among these yogis or jogis, as they're often as we're referring to them, practitioners of yoga. And then by the Mughal period from the 1520s onwards, we increasingly have Hindus who were as fluent in Persian or indeed more fluent in Persian than the average Muslim. So there's a shared language as well as shared sort of sociological mm -hmm. sort of uh, experience, isn't it, that, that goes beyond these simple separate categories of Hindus and Muslims, Hinduism and, and Islam. So, yeah, let's return then to where you left off by around the 17th century. We're seeing attempts to actually translate Sanskrit religious texts into Persian Arabic, including texts on yoga. So, yeah, let's, let's talk through, tell us about some examples. Well, I got interested in this subject because, uh, in part, there was an old uh, Orientalist theory that was developed from the very beginnings of scholarship among Europeans about India, which uh, rested on the assumption that everything in the East is all the same. And uh, if there's an idea that's floating around, it comes from India. And so uh, when the European scholars led by Sir William Jones discovered Sufism for the first time, they, they thought, well, this is really fascinating. It's wonderful stuff. It's about love and wine and poetry. And it's very enjoyable. So how could it have anything to do with Islam, which we really dislike? And so they decided it must be that Sufism comes from Greek philosophy or the New Testament or from yoga. And so uh, I thought to myself, you know, there's a lot of reasons to question this because uh, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to try to derive everything that's from the Sufi world from yoga. But what is the evidence? Let's see where it goes. And so there's a text which I had heard about, which is called, the English translation is called the Pool of Nectar. That's uh, the name of the Sanskrit translation, which it says it's a translation of. And so uh, I began to look at it and I realized there's a lot going on here because it has uh, yoga postures, it has chakras, it has mantras. Uh, and it has goddesses. And so what in the world is happening with this text? And the more I looked into it, the more surprising it became. And I discovered that most of the manuscripts were in Istanbul and second most often in Cairo. So these were transported outside of India. And I realized there was a great deal of translation going on in the text because it was, uh, written by somebody who is deeply involved in the sort of uh, Neoplatonic philosophy of Suhravardi, a Persian thinker who's known for his metaphysics of light. And uh, so some material from his teachings were, is incorporated into the text as a kind of a psychological uh, basis for understanding yoga. And uh, It's really a question about how this, the, the anonymous author who uh, put this material together 
says something that's quite personal in the, in the introduction. Although he tells us a, a fictional story about how it originated in the frontier of East Bengal as early as the year 1212, when a yogi came out of the forest to have a debate with a Muslim scholar and lost the debate and so converted to Islam and said, by the way, I have this great text. And that was supposedly how it originated. But the uh, person who put this together, he says that he met somebody who told him who was a master of this text and he became his disciple. And he speaks in, in a kind of emotional passage that something kind of breaks through about the personal experience this person must have had, but he was inspired to put this all together in a way that would be uh, appealing. And it is also, it became popular because it was attributed in half of the manuscripts to Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi from Spain. It's not by him, but uh, anything by him is popular. And some years ago, my good friend Bruce Lawrence was in Damascus and got to know a sheikh there who it turns out is teaching this text today. And uh, remarkably, about a week ago, I got a letter from Indonesia from someone who is part of a Sufi group there. And they were asking if I could share some of the manuscripts of this text because they, they use it, but their copies are not in very good condition. So uh, these things continue to have a life of their own, which is kind of remarkable. Uh, it was translated into Turkish and into Persian and into, into Urdu. And in the Mughal period, a, uh, a Sufi named Muhammad Gauss uh, translated it into Persian, although his Persian translation is five times as long as the original. And he had access to material from contemporary yogis that was, uh, much more detailed. And he says some really remarkable things. He says that uh, in one place he remarks that the uh, teachings of the yogis, and he says that we uh, have to acknowledge that the yogis talk about the spirit, that, which probably means the atma, as eternal, whereas the Quran says that God created the spirit. He says, well, we have to take these seriously, but we have to find a way to make them work together. And so he's interested in creating a way of interpreting that, that will permit them to, to use this because he says, the yogis have experiences which we do not have in, because of their knowledge of the body. And that creates a link which is important and we have to be able to account for that. Uh, so it's clear that this was internalized and became part of the teaching of a number of different Sufi circles and there's an interesting example of this uh, that was exported again to the Arabic speaking world, uh, a text that was written about 1850 by a Libyan scholar named Muhammad al-Sanusi, which he called uh, the, uh, the pure spring containing the 40 Sufi orders. And there he narrates the, practices that he was taught in by being initiated into 40 different Sufi groups. And so one of them is the Shataris that uh, Muhammad Gauss belonged to. And so we are told that uh, uh, he says there's a subset of the Shataris who are known as 
of Jujia, namely the yogis. And they have some extra interesting practices, which we will now uh, uh, share with you. So that was in North Africa in the 19th century. Uh, so um, this is one of many examples, but it's, it's uh, spectacularly interesting because the uh, interpretive moves that were being made by these Sufis in order to uh, account for these practices are remarkable ways of not simply uh, conveying something that is foreign, but of trying to appropriate it or put it in terms that make sense internally. Uh, one example is the, uh, the yogic mantras. I think many people are familiar with the syllable om, which is so important in uh, Hindu practices and meditations. Uh, in this text, the Pool of Nectar, we are informed that it has a translation in Arabic, which is Ya Rab, O Lord. It's one of the names of God, according to the Quran, and is part of Sufi practice where they recite the names of God. And so each of the seven mantras, which is discussed in the seventh chapter, is given an Arabic translation as one of the names of God. And so they say that, well, uh, these are zikr formulas or recitation of the names of God in Hindi, or which means for them the Indian language. And that's a fairly capacious way of understanding things. It's not unprecedented because there was a feeling that there were uh, important prayers that the prophets had been delivered in the Syriac language, for instance, and in Hebrew. And so why wouldn't it be in India? Because after all, Adam landed in India. And so uh, he must have known the Indian language, right? <laughs> Whatever he spoke would be Indian, I suppose. And so uh, this is, uh, is really uh, interesting and consequential. The, is, uh, it's also noteworthy that uh, one of the texts that comes out of this tradition uh, became immensely popular in Persia among the uh, Shiite uh, clerical thinkers. And so they liked it and they, they, but they discussed it. They said, here is something which comes from India and it's not really part of Islam, but it works. And so uh, versions of this text have been circulating among the uh, intellectuals in Persia since the 17th century. And at least, actually it goes back probably to the 1300s. And you can find uh, one of these texts right now online on the website of a major Ayatollah uh, who himself had edited a text containing this uh, discussion of these practices. So uh, you also find some pushback in Malaysia, for instance, uh, there have been some religious fatwas, legal opinions, saying that yoga is forbidden for Muslims. Uh, there are also active yoga teaching schools in Malaysia anyway. Uh, every time there's a law against something, you know that somebody is doing it. Uh, yoga is popular in Iran, in Cairo, and there's 
lots of discussions of it, which come from a medical point of view because of its supposed health benefits and the like. So it's a subject which uh, continues to come up. Somebody has um, recently published their new translations of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras into Arabic and Persian. And there is a, not, a small group of Indological scholars in Iran who do some pretty significant, significant work over the last you know, decades. And they also, some of them have a sense that there's a historic relationship between India and Iran, and it needs to be explored through these subjects. Uh, they've also become attentive to the fact that the knowledge of Persian was, as we were discussing a moment ago, so widespread in India that in reality, a far larger amount of Persian literature was produced in the Indian subcontinent than in Persia itself. And this goes to include the publication of books, which uh, was extraordinary coming out of India and Hindu publishers like the famous Neville Kishore in Lucknow had uh, a far greater output of books than you find in, in Persia and it included books like this, uh, works of this type. Uh, there's an Urdu translation of the, uh, the Ocean of Life by Muhammad Gauss that was published in a nice lithograph edition. So the, uh, these texts and the palpable interest and engagement among Muslims with the practices of yoga over the centuries is uh, a sign of something very important going on, which is that we should not imagine that religious identities have always been exclusionary and rigidly defined to ensure the purity of one particular point of view. That seems to be much more of a modern preoccupation. And so I think there's something we can learn from this about the, this non-exclusive history of uh, engagement between Muslims and, and their Indian environment, which means that when we look at religion in general, or Islam is a major example of that, uh, there is no place where you find a pure religion that is detached from local culture. I mean, there is an attempt made in uh, fundamentalist discourse to separate out Arab culture as uniquely pure, uh, but that's somewhat of a predictable move from that point of view. Uh, and I think many scholars are aware of the, the way in which religious ideology has been used for uh, exclusionary purposes. And I think that our work as scholars can be helpful to uh, open up some possibilities of a more cosmopolitan outlook that could be beneficial for uh, many of us, not only in our own society, but elsewhere in where these are live issues. So I think that the study of the interaction between uh, Muslims and 
Hindu culture is an extraordinary subject for uh, the larger vision of what how human culture works. So as we move then from the time of Al-Biruni in the 11th century to through the centuries towards the present day, and as you've said with your own recent messages from Indonesia, some of these texts are still being read, even if they're not as widely promoted, perhaps yes. as, uh, as more recent, in some cases, fundamentalist or reformist or modernist uh, Muslim or text, even Muslim texts about other religions. Perhaps as we look to the present day then, What's the legacy of these Muslim refractions and interactions in, with Hinduism, whether in South Asia or beyond? Well, if we go back to Al-Biruni, one thing to notice about him is that he was kind of adamant about saying that everything that we do, the Muslims, is the opposite of what the Hindus do. And he was uh, rather firm on that, although I think he relied uh, much more upon uh, analogies with Greeks and Sufis and, and others than he needed to in his understanding of Hinduism. But you know, he was a minority view. There's only one manuscript surviving of his uh, book on India, which tells you something. Uh, it was not something that was all that widely read. I mean, it's a difficult book, but do you know who made it popular again was the British. Uh, in the publication of it that was commissioned in both the Arabic text and the English in about 1880 was from the British colonial government. And they, I think, felt that Al-Biruni got it right because the Hindus should be different from the Muslims so that we can divide and rule. And uh, I think that the subsequent history of South Asia really went against that. And uh, in the Mughal period, if we just com com contrast Al-Biruni with Abu Fazl, the, the minister of Akbar, in his uh, sequel to the biography that he wrote of Akbar, the Institutes uh, of Akbar, uh, Abu Fazl has an extraordinary passage about the monotheism of the Indians. And, and he manages to describe this without using more than, he only uses one Arabic word in this account. Everything is in pure Persian. And I think the reason he did this was to argue that uh, Islam is not necessary to understand monotheism. And that was because of his firm belief that Akbar was the embodiment of the Mongol imperial ideal. And they didn't need to have Islam as the basis of society. Uh, so therefore, you have to know about the other religious groups in the empire in order to get away from the wretched parochialism, which he found to be so prevalent among some of the more narrow-minded Muslim intellectuals. Um, fast forward to the 19th century, religion gets reconfigured under a new idea, which is coming from Europe. And uh, as you know, and you've written about the, uh, not only was this part of the uh, enlightenment energy coming up as Orientalism, but also uh, a missionary impulse and the desire to spread Christianity in these uh, Asian realms. And so Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, and others found their religion being criticized and sliced and diced by 
Europeans, and they rose to defend themselves. But they ended up using the language of debate, which had been set up by their critics among the missionaries, among the Oriental scholars, Orientalist scholars, and, and British colonial administrators. And the result has been a transformation of communities and identities uh, through the census, through the courts, through uh, many administrative measures. And consequently, the uh, British legacy we find in institutions such as Anglo-Mohammedan law. I always tell my students that you can't make up a term like that anymore. Uh, it's uh, Islam is interpreted by jurists who are European. And so uh, now Muslims and Hindus have the opportunity to rethink their history and their identities if they can avoid falling into the trap of nationalism. And so I think that's one of the big issues that's going to face the future of South Asia. And it's, I have to say, a, a hope of mine that work that is done by uh, the small groups of scholars who are still working on these fields can be a contribution to that debate and to that uh, self-interrogation. Who are we? You know, we, all, we all have to ask that question in our own worlds. And the lesson that will be taught by the experience of South Asia will be instructive. And I hope it will be one that takes account of the long history of thoughtful interaction and conversation rather than the, uh, the closed discourses of uh, ideological uh, formulations. So that's the way I would kind of summarize the legacy that we have to to think about. Well, you've really given us a wonderful sense of the grand stakes of what might seem this ivory tower activity of studying the crossovers between these recondite manuscripts in Sanskrit and Arabic and Persian and, and Hindi. And indeed the ramifications today of actually looking at what is the, the evidence of Muslim thought and indeed of Muslim interactions with other religions. Professor Carl Ernst, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's chamber. Thank you very much indeed. Da 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 da